The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, October 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you will. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 through 26 today. We are mindful of the fact that you have your children with you more than you usually do at this time, so... We'll keep that in mind. We'll watch the clock. Ooh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 through 26. Let me read that for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll, we'll see what else God wants to do this morning. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk. By the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Lord, help us, first of all, to get a whole sermon out of that, but, but help us to hear what you're saying, to really hear what you're saying, to not just talk about your Holy Spirit, but to have your Holy Spirit really make this Word alive for us. Touch those places in our lives that need to be touched the most through this part of the Bible. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, kids, I need some help. So if you're here, some of you, you younger types, how many of you have gotten a head start on this whole trick-or-treating thing and you already have some candy? Yes. Look at that. Look at that. Okay, now, now on Tuesday, you don't have to tell people that as you go around and get more. You know, you can just get more candy, that's fine. But when you're eating candy, we're my, my candy-eating expert children here, you have to do things in the right order, don't you? Like, which one do you do first? Do you, do you put it in your mouth or do you take off the wrapper first? Yes, Jabari, you take off the wrapper. Take off the wrapper first and then you put it in your mouth. Now, what, you, what should you do even before that? Anybody know? Yeah, all right, offer it to your parents, That's, uh, that, that'll work, that'll work. And what about ask your parents if you can have a piece of the candy? That's good too, isn't it? That's right, that's right. So, so these kids are going to, parents, they're going to be asking you if they can have some of that candy before they just put it in their mouth. And if you believe that, talk to Tim Abbott. Where's Tim? Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> anyway, so sometimes you have to do things exactly in the right order. Now, today is a little different for me. When I'm explaining the Bible, I'm going to do it in a, in a slightly different order. So I'm going to start in verse 25, then we're going to go to verse 26, and then I'll go back to verse 24. And so here's what we'll see. In verse 25, we'll, we'll see God telling us something we should do. In verse 26, something we shouldn't do. Verse 24, we'll see something we've already done. And hopefully by the time all of that's finished, I'll help us see what God had to do first before we could do any of that stuff, okay? So that's, that's what I'm hoping will happen, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Now, there's a whole lot going on in that one verse. At the most basic level, though, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we have a new life inside of us. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of those who belong to Christ Jesus. So we have this new life from God on the inside of us. And if we live by the Spirit in this way, we ought to what? 
walk with the Spirit. So I, I need, I need a, a volunteer. I need a volunteer. Will, why don't you come here? Thanks for volunteering, man. So Will is just going to walk. He's just going to walk. And I'm going to walk by Will. The New International Version says that we should keep in step with the Spirit. So see, I'm not letting him get too far ahead. I'm not running far ahead of him. Thanks, Will. Everybody clap for Will. I am keeping in step with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, right? So I'm not running ahead of the Spirit and just saying, here's what I think is right, here's what I think I should do, and then let me check later to see what he thinks. And I'm not lagging far behind. I'm trying to keep pace with and go in the same direction as the leading of God's Spirit within me. So when Paul says here that we should walk by the Spirit, that word walk there is actually the way that Paul is describing the way we should live our entire lives, following the leading of God's Holy Spirit in us. So at the most basic level, that's what he's saying. Since we have this new life in us, we should also have a new way of life about us. We have this new life on the inside, we should have a new way of life on the outside, right? So Tobin, that means we we think differently, we speak differently, we act differently, yes? All right, so if we're Christians, we, we don't just say, oh, I'll figure out what's right or wrong for myself, and it doesn't matter what the Bible says. No, we listen to the Bible, and we trust what God is saying to us there. And so we speak differently. We speak kindly, and we behave differently. So that's what he's saying. We have new life on the inside. It should equate to a new life, a way of life on the outside, okay? There's a lot deeper, and I'll, I'll just mention this for some of you adults. I'll call that, that's on the bottom shelf. Here's some stuff on the top shelf of this verse that, that you wouldn't access on your own unless somebody really told you and, and got it down for you. But that word walk by, or, or the phrase walk by the Spirit, Paul uses a very interesting word in the Greek language, and it's the word stoichiomen. I, I was a chemistry major in college. Anybody here studied chemistry in high school or college? Okay, then you've heard of the word stoichiometry. Stoichiometry is the study of how different elements combine and the exact proportions or ratios in which they combine, right? So some of you, you're, you're not into science, and you're like, man, this is way too technical. Stick with me for like three minutes. That's all, three minutes, right? Then you can do whatever you're doing, but three minutes. So in stoichiometry, let's say two elements are coming together like hydrogen and oxygen. Those are invisible elements that combine together in certain ways to produce something you can see, something called water, okay? Now, let's, let's do the stoichiometry thing. In stoichiometry, we talk about things called limiting reagents. So let's, let's say these two elements are combining. One of them is going to serve as a limiting reagent. So that one, all of it will get used up in the reaction, and then it will limit or determine how much of the other element gets to participate in the reaction and eventually express itself as something visible like water. Are you with me so far? All right, so let's say hydrogen and oxygen are, are reacting, and the hydrogen is a limiting reagent. The oxygen is going to react with it. All of the hydrogen will get used up, and only some of the oxygen will get used up, and some will be left over. You with me? Okay, I think Paul intentionally uses this word here because he's trying to drive home something that you wouldn't be able to do without that word. We have the Holy Spirit of God on the inside of us, like a limiting reagent. Think about all the desires 
that are floating around inside of us. We have this invisible set of desires. We have the desires of the Spirit to please God, and we have the desire of the flesh to go against God. We feel those on a daily basis. The Holy Spirit acts as a limiting reagent, and it, it determines which of these desires gets to participate with our will and our body to actually express itself as something visible, visible behavior. That's why he chooses this word stoichiomen to describe what's going on here. So this, this is Paul saying, if we really have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us, it should limit or he should limit and determine which of these desires gets to express itself all the way in visible behavior. Are you all with me there? There's your chemistry lesson, and we can move on, right? What we should do is we should walk by the Spirit, and you kind of get a sense of what that means. All of those desires will be there. The Holy Spirit on the inside of us should limit and determine which of those desires get all the way to the point of expressing themselves in visible behavior. What should we not do? Look at verse 26. We should not become conceited. Let us not become conceited, and you would never guess this, but the way Paul writes this here, he takes that concept of becoming conceited, and he, he says there are two, two forms of being conceited that he highlights. One he calls provoking, and the other he calls envying. That word for provoking is, is the word prokaleo, and it literally means to call out. Uh, you might think of it this way, like let's say you observe a sinful pattern in someone else's life and you say, I'm going to bring attention to that. I'm going to call that out. But there's a way to do that that is helpful and very humble where you acknowledge your own weaknesses as well and you're just seeking to help that person see something they may not be able to see. You know, that's the kind of help and godly help that we'll see a little bit touched on in, in chapter 6 as we get into the, the beginning of that. Right, where we're helping to carry each other's burdens and restoring people gently. But this, this prokaleo, this provoking, is something different. It's a calling out of something you see in someone else's life, not so much to be helpful to them, but to bring glory to yourself by establishing the fact that you are superior to them in this, in this aspect of life. Right, so this would be like, uh, oh, you struggle with that? Well, I don't. That's, that's provoking, all right? And, and it's more than that, but it includes that. The other one is envying one another. You might say, well, how, how is that conceit? If I'm envying somebody, then I'm looking at them and saying, they're, they're superior to me in some way. How is that conceit? Well, that, that's the thing that Paul is exposing here. Whether we have a sense of our own superiority such that we provoke others, or we have a sense or a belief in our inferiority such that we envy others, both of those are forms of conceit. Because with both of those, have you noticed that what you're thinking about primarily is yourself? You're constantly fixated on yourself and how you appear in relation to everyone else around you. And you know what you're not thinking about at that time? You're not thinking about Jesus. You're not thinking about how your life is centered on Him and His purposes and how he, he wants to do the same for the people you're envying or provoking. See, that's why when you, when you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility 
to count others more significant than yourselves, right? It's not just children who need to learn how to count. We adults need to learn how to count as well, how to count others more significant than ourselves. And the opposite of this kind of conceit, which causes us to count ourselves more significant than everyone else, is humility. Humility. And, and I like how one of our pastors, who's often at the, the other building, the 400, Chris DeRocco, he, he often says true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. And there's certainly much more to true humility, but it at least is that. So we, we should not become conceited, provoking or envying one another. Those are both forms of conceit, and the gospel means to flush that out of our lives. Now back to verse 24, having looked at what we should do and shouldn't do, what have we done already? It says that those who belong to Christ Jesus, so first of all, this is applying only to those who belong to Christ Jesus. So I can't look at a room like this and assume that that's everybody. It is possible that you are here this morning and at best you have simply rubbed shoulders with religion. Maybe for a little while, maybe for your entire life. And you've never really come to the place where you've looked at Jesus, the Son of God, and it has been made real to you that you were created by God for a relationship with Him that you have sinned against God and offended Him through this sin, that sin has damaged the relationship between you and the God who made you, and you are now separated from Him. The ultimate penalty for living apart from God this way and independently of God this way is eternal separation from Him in a place that He calls hell. It is final judgment. And, and you have never believed that, and you have never looked at Jesus and seeing that He is necessary to you. He had to come here and live a perfect life and die on the cross in your place so that your sins could be forgiven, and He had to rise from the dead three days later so that you could receive new life and so that He could show you that He has the authority to give you this new life, and only He has the authority to do it. You have never seen Jesus as necessary for you. At best, you have seen Him as an option if you want to figure out how to live your life a little bit better. And finally, you've never seen Him as sufficient for you. You've never believed that everything needed to put things right between you and God has been brought by Jesus Christ and is supplied to you in His perfect life, His death, and in His resurrection. You've never come to believe any of these things about God yourself or His Son, Jesus Christ. And you sit here today realizing that's you. If that's you, you do not yet belong to Christ Jesus. But you can You just need to trust Him. He is the great rescuer or Savior. He knows how to save you. In your heart, all you need to do is believe what we are saying about Jesus. That He is the one and only Son of God. And God so loved the world, including you, that He offered up His Son on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven and that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. If you believe that today, it all changes for you and you find yourself in verse 24, belonging to Christ Jesus. And then this, this would also be true of you. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, everybody read it with me, have what? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, you don't believe that, do you? It's past tense. Do you believe that you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? 
You say, there's no way that's true. I fight these passions and desires every single day. I mean, we've been talking about that for months now, how these desires rage within us and are always in conflict with the Spirit. So what does it mean that we have crucified the sinful nature or the flesh with its passions and desires? It has to be true because the Bible teaches it. That's a sermon all in itself. It is true. What does it mean? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's here's what I want to point out about this crucifixion. First thing, note very carefully who it is that is doing the crucifying. Who is it that is doing the crucifying here? Us. See, Jesus is crucified. And most often when the Bible talks about us being crucified, we see something like Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And the emphasis is on what is being done to us in those places, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 6 is very similar. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, Right? The emphasis is on what is happening to us. We are being crucified with Christ. But look at the emphasis in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Where does God place the emphasis this time? He places it on our active participation in putting our sin to death. We who belong to Christ Jesus are not just passive in the crucifixion of these desires and passions that war against the Spirit, we are actively putting to death the flesh and its passions and desires. This is also captured in places like Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But notice even there in, in Romans 8.13, as it says we do this by the Spirit, it is still on, the emphasis is on our active putting to death. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Christian is active in his or her battle against the flesh and its desires and passions. This will not just happen to you. It is not magic It is the power of God at work in you by His Spirit, and part of this requires your active participation in obedience to God in putting to death whatever is earthly and ungodly in you. So that that is something I want us to see about this crucifixion in chapter 5, verse 24 of Galatians. So back over in Galatians 5, 24, there's something else I want us to see. Sometimes when, when a crucifixion is taking place, One thing is being crucified because something else is preferred. So now I'm getting to what God had to do first before you and I were even willing to lift a finger to put our flesh to death and to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. How is it that you and I have come to the place where all of a sudden we are willing to say no to crucify the flesh in the sense of we are identifying the flesh as our enemy. We are rejecting the flesh. 
and seeking to put an end to its power to draw us away from God. We are identifying it as our enemy, and we are rejecting it and saying no. How have you and I come to the place where we are now starting to reject the very real pleasures that sin offers to us? There's a real pleasure, isn't there, in talking about somebody behind his or her back? It's, it's only there for a moment, but it's real. It is a real pleasure. I mean, just think about it for a minute. I get to feel superior to this person. In so much of my life, I might be faced with my failings and my weaknesses, but in this moment, as I talk about this person, I'm on top. It feels so good. It is an evil and dark pleasure, but it is real. The flesh craves that. And if you, if you have the opportunity to say this thing in the presence of someone that you might know agrees with you, you even have, in a, in a really twisted kind of way, you have this opportunity to enjoy a kind of companionship around this sin. There's, there's not just the, the pleasure of feeling validated and superior to someone else, but you have this sort of pleasure of companionship in it all. It's a, it's a very attractive and intoxicating pleasure. It's real. We could mention other pleasures like this, but these are real pleasures. How is it that you and I have come to the place where all of a sudden we find ourselves desiring something better and saying, no, no, not anymore. I'm going to walk by the Spirit. That's not going to be my life. Look at Matthew chapter, 20, Matthew chapter 27, verse 15. This is the picture I got as I was just praying and thinking, well, how, how, do I, how do I try to bring this across? Sometimes we're calling out for the crucifixion of one thing or one person because we prefer something else. Now look at Matthew 27, 15, and you'll see a story of when Jesus was crucified. Starting in verse 15, now, at the feast, the governor, that is Pontius Pilate, he was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they then had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they, de they had delivered Jesus up to him. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. I guess this is the, the equivalent of a first century text message. And, and she said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And so the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then, then what do you want me to do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? I mean, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. They called for Jesus to be crucified because they preferred Barabbas. They preferred what Barabbas could do for them. All they cared about was the pleasure of being released from this oppressive regime that was the Roman Empire. They're political oppressors. They wanted that relief, and they thought that Barabbas could deliver that pleasure to them, and so they wanted Barabbas. 
That's why they asked for Jesus to be crucified. Now, now I say that only to say this. The reason that you and I have come to the place in our hearts where we are willing to identify the, the, the sinful nature or our flesh as our enemy and to reject it and the pleasures it offers is because by the Spirit we have come to prefer someone else. Jesus Christ. We have come to prefer the pleasures not just momentary pleasures now, but the lasting pleasures, eternal pleasures that Jesus and Jesus alone can give. We have come to, to not only understand who He is, but we have come to love Him. Though you do not see Him, you love Him, the Bible says. And even though you can't see Him now, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We have come to treasure Jesus more than the momentary pleasures that sin offers to us. So what God had to do first before you and I could get to this place is He had to send His own Son to the cross. Notice when we are crucified, Galatians 2.20 says, we are crucified with Christ. He had to be crucified first. And when He was dying on that cross, He was dying in our place. He was actually paying a penalty, a penalty for sin that He never committed. You and I committed those sins instead. And Jesus was, was sent into the world by God to pay the penalty for the lives that you and I have chosen to live. And he did that, and God accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead. And now he offers a full pardon to anyone who trusts in Jesus and believes in him. And he puts his Holy Spirit in those who belong to Jesus, and now we can walk by the Spirit. And as we saw last week, begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives unto God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, things like these. And I will close with this story because... If, if you've ever really tried to battle the desires of the flesh, if something has a grip on you that you cannot shake, and I would go out on a limb and say here, I, I, think, I think that's all of us. Whether we're talking about something that you can share easily in public like me biting my nails at the age of 40, or whether we're talking about the kind of thing that we raise in other settings, where, where every once in a while the Holy Spirit does some work in us and he, he reminds us that, you know what? I've only got one perfect person I've ever sent into this world. It's not you. And it's not the people you're afraid of around you. It's my son Jesus. And in his perfection, he does not come to condemn you. Right after the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, Right after that, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through Him might be saved. See, Jesus does not come to you today to condemn you. He's not here just to point out your worst and weakest moments. Maybe, maybe you can't just blurt out what your thing is here, but maybe, maybe your thing is you, you are just always tempted and drawn to places where you stare at other people's bodies in ways that dishonor God and diminish them. Jesus died for that. Jesus is here to help you with that. Jesus is here to flush that out of your life by His Holy Spirit. And, and, and if you've ever tried to overcome something like that, you realize how futile it is to simply try to grit your teeth and muster up your willpower to change yourself. Have you realized that already? 
Maybe you've done well for a week and you're feeling really good about yourself and you're ready to, to procaleo everybody around you. You're ready to call all that out and, and show everybody why you're doing so well and what, what book you read, and, and, but then what happens after a week? You stumble again, and now whereas once you were just full of pride and puffed up, now you feel depressed. And you've missed the gospel on both ends of that emotional spectrum. You never were really this, and you're much more than that. You're, you're a child of God struggling with passions and desires for which Jesus already died and paid the penalty, and He is walking with you and calling you to walk by the Spirit. He is here with His grace to help us. So, so we, we don't have to just play this religious game where, where we're, we're constantly just gritting our teeth and mustering up our willpower. There is a better way. And, and in fact, this was hundreds of years ago. I, I think it was back in the uh, late 18th century. There's a guy by the name of Thomas Chalmers. Robert, Robert talks about this quite a bit. But he, he gave a sermon, I think in the year 1780, and, and he called it, or people called it after him, the expulsive power of a new affection. That when, when you want to rid yourself of a, a bad affection and a destructive affection for one thing, the best way for that to happen is for you to find a deeper satisfaction and an affection in something else that is good. The expulsive power of a new affection, it expels from your life what is destroying you. So imagine if, let's say, sin were, uh, I'm just going to call it soda, Coke. Imagine a, a cup full of Coke, right? Uh, Pepsi, whatever works for you, whatever your, your, your favorite drink is. But let's say you want to get rid of all the stuff in that cup, and, and you don't want to leave any residue on, on the sides. Well, you can't just empty it out, right? Because that will leave stuff all over it. So what you do is you do what? Just stick that thing under the faucet, turn on the faucet, and let the water go in there and flush it all out. This is what God does to us by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, clean up your life first and then come here to me and I might accept you. He says, bring me that dirty life. Bring it all. Bring your weaknesses. Bring your failures. Bring you just as you are. Right? Just come, and what he does is it, you receive Christ, he puts his spirit in you, and, he, and the Holy Spirit from the inside begins to flush out all of that sin, the desires of the flesh. He begins to make us new in here. There, there's a story that really brings this home for me, and I, I think Chris DeRocco told this story once, if you know Chris, one of our pastors who's usually at the other building. He, he told this story from Greek mythology, and it's always stuck with me. Uh, but I'm going to tell you a story of two guys, one named Ulysses, one named Jason. They were both going to go past this island where these creatures called the sirens used to sing. Have you ever heard the phrase, the song of the sirens? Well, that's where this comes from. The sirens would sing this incredibly beautiful song. No one could resist the alluring and attractive song of the sirens. They would just buy, they would get into a trance and just by trance, they would, they would fall, uh, they would crash into this island on the rocks, and they would end up on the island. There was one problem. Instead of finding pure delight when they got there, they found out that the sirens were these brutal, awful creatures that, that absolutely destroyed and devoured everyone that crashed on the island. The power, 
the pleasure, the attractive nature of, of the music, the sin was real, but it was deadly. There is real pleasure to be had in sin, but it will kill us. It will destroy everything valuable to us. It will destroy the beauty God has put in this world. It is the great destroyer of everything good. The pleasure is real, but it comes at way too high of a cost. Ulysses decided he wanted to still enjoy the music of sin, but he didn't want to be destroyed by it. So he looked at his crew and he said, you know what? All of you put in earplugs so that you aren't carried away and destroyed, but I'm going to leave my ears open, and I want you to tie me down to the mast of the ship. Use the strongest ropes you have, and no matter what I say or do, do not let me out. And so Ulysses was going by and heard the song of the sirens, and he indulged in that pleasure. And try though he might, he could not break free to go there because of the ropes that held him down. He, he trusted in the power of that external restraint to protect him. The only problem was in his heart, he still loved what sin was offering. He still loved destructive pleasures. He was unchanged on the inside. I served for 12, almost 13 years as a campus minister. I would go, go out to college campuses, I'd meet college students, and I am telling you, when your children arrive in those places as freshmen, I met your kids when those ropes came off. The, the restraint that you put on them, these restraints of religion, and all these rules that they couldn't keep, I met your kids when those ropes were no longer there. Parents, I, I, am, I am telling you, we have to give our kids something much better than religion. I'm not saying we can't give them helpful guidance as they're growing up and helpful restraints. Those are, are welcomed in ways and those are needed as well. But what I'm saying is that if we are not weaning our children off of those restraints and helping them to find something much more powerful on the inside, real transformation then we are missing what God wants us to do and be as parents. Ulysses was spared from completely being devoured by the sirens, but he was unchanged, and he was like a ticking time bomb just waiting for the next thing that would seek to destroy him. And then there was Jason. Jason was going by the very same island, and he didn't want to die either, but this is what Jason did. He hired a musician named Orpheus, and he brought Orpheus onto the boat, and he said, Orpheus, when we begin to hear the song of the sirens, I want you to play your most beautiful song. Orpheus was the most talented and gifted musician in all of the land. No one could resist the charm of his music. He began to play as they passed by the siren song, and he played so loudly and so beautifully that Jason just sat there and took it all in. And as he took in the superior beauty and excellence of the music that Orpheus played, he was protected from the song, the destructive and alluring song of the sirens. Something got on the inside of Jason that protected him. Friends, Jesus, his perfect life, 
His wisdom, His perfection, His mercy, His kindness, when we watch Him interacting with others, His perfect submission and obedience to God our Father, everything that you and I desire to see reflected in us in some real measure, Jesus was all of that and more. Jesus, His perfect life, His death for us on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension, His, His, His glory, His outpouring of the Spirit, His reigning and ruling over this world, now His making all things new, Jesus is that superior song. He is that song. He, he is the, the thing. He is the one that we need. We need a stronger affection for Jesus than we have for the pleasures of sin. Long term, it is the only way for us to be delivered from the power of the flesh and the desires that we battle with every day. That's why the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's why when you see Robert up here every week, or me, or Rayshawn, or anybody else who stands up here, instead of just giving you rules about how to live your life, we give you Jesus every week. Because all of us believe something here. We believe that Jesus and only Jesus is able to save us. We should walk by the Spirit. We should not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. We have, by the grace of God, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And the only reason we have been willing to do that is because God has has first sacrificed His own Son and has put within us this new life, this new love, and this new affection for Jesus that is beginning to expel everything in us that is ungodly. Let's continue to walk by the Spirit and to live that way, never again to return to an empty form of religion that is nothing more than useless restraints that will be gone one day anyway. Look at Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Lord, help us to look at You and to behold You like we saw last week until we're changed Beholding the glory of the Lord, let us be changed into the very same image from one degree of glory to another. Let us leave here today beholding and looking upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and who now sits in glory. Lord, we long for Your return, but we do, we beg that You would wait just a little bit so that people have more time to hear about you and to respond to you in repentance and faith. Would you go through the room now and do that? Grant repentance and faith to those souls who have never tasted it, who have never turned to you in repentance and faith. Give them a full pardon for sin. Give them a share in the inheritance that is eternal life. And Lord, let us taste the superior satisfaction of knowing you. Let us walk with you. And let that be our greatest joy. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.